Okay, when was the first time you remember finding Orion in the sky? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you, I wrote it. (laughs) You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. As a kid, one of the first constellations I learned about is Orion, one of the most recognizable constellations in the sky. And soon after the sun sets, if you live in the northern hemisphere, you can find Orion near the eastern horizon on winter nights. In Greek mythology, Orion is a legendary hunter. One myth says he was banished to the sky for boasting about how many animals he could kill, and that he and his hunting dogs eternally chased Taurus the bull and the Pleiades sisters. Another says that the goddess Artemis was tricked into killing Orion with her arrow, setting his image in the stars. When we peer into the sky now, we can see the over a dozen stars that form his constellation. The easiest to see are the three that line up to make his belt. You know, I had seen it before, but I didn't know what I was looking at. And I started studying the star Betelgeuse um, as a freshman. And so my my gaze was drawn upwards to uh, that red star in Orion. That's Serafina Elbadri-Nance, an astrophysicist and an expert in Betelgeuse, another star in Orion. It's the upper left shoulder of Orion. It is a red supergiant, so it literally looks red to the naked eye, um, which makes it really easily um, found when you're looking for the star. And it's particularly interesting because it is very close and it is nearing the end of its life when it will explode as a supernova. If you're looking up at Betelgeuse, coming to the end of its life, you might wonder, how did it get there? What stages of life does a star go through before it dies? The life cycle of a star is primarily determined by the mass of the star. So low-mass stars have very different fates um, than high-mass stars do. A low-mass star, stars smaller than our sun, will live longer than high-mass stars, like Betelgeuse. It's kind of like dogs. Smaller dogs tend to live longer than big ones. And these really massive stars explode at the end of their lives. But don't worry. Our sun is not massive enough to explode at the end of its life. Instead, it will sort of get really big as a red giant and then will fizzle out into what we call a white dwarf. So today on the show, it's a star party. Serafina and I walk you through three winter constellations and journey through the life of a star. I'm Regina Barber, and you're listening to Shortwave, the science podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or a new single-barrel bourbon to try with some help from one of their friendly guides. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. B21. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or a new single-barrel bourbon to try with some help from one of their friendly guides. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. 
Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. B21. Okay, Serafina, let's start with the beginning of a star's life. How are stars born? So basically, stars are born in these stellar nurseries that we call giant molecular clouds. And they're sort of like the cradles of newborn stars. And basically, they're regions of gas and dust that clump together because of gravity. And as the density of these regions pulls more and more gas and dust towards it, that pressure can cause them to collapse under their own weight and create what we call a protostar, which is sort of the nascent star. And then over the course of, you know, millions of years, the protostars will sort of settle down and ignite fusion in their cores, which sort of sets the star on its life cycle as a real main sequence star or hydrogen burning star. Right. So in order for something to even be a star at all, like nuclear fusion has to happen, right? Turning hydrogen into helium in its core. Right, exactly. Once it ignites hydrogen, um, the star becomes quote-unquote alive. Nuclear fusion is the lifeblood of a star. And basically what happens in the cores of stars is that elements um, and molecules collide with each other and create heavier and heavier elements as they do so. And their energy is released in the form of light that sort of shines through the star and that we see as starlight or, in the case of our sun, sunlight. So that nuclear fusion basically sets the tone of the star, and that nuclear fusion ignites once the star transitions from a protostar to a main-sequence star. Once stars start to fuse those elements in their core, they wink into existence. And this doesn't usually happen in isolation. Groups of stars are born from the same molecular cloud. And if you zoom back out to the larger scene of these constellations and look to the right of Orion, you will see Taurus, the bull. And within that constellation, you can catch a glimpse of the Pleiades sisters running from Orion and his dogs. It's an area with baby stars. So the stellar nursery in the Pleiades has basically hundreds of new stars. And they're blue because of the size and the temperature that they're um, born at. These baby stars in Pleiades, they're blue because they're born very hot. This makes sense if you think about fire. Like a campfire is really red, maybe yellow, but it's not as hot as the blue flame that comes out of a blowtorch. So blue stars are hotter than red stars. And new forming stars are sort of at the hottest parts of their existence. So they look very blue. And as the Pleiades or any stars form and move around, some stars will split off from their siblings. But those that stick together, they can form binary or even trinary systems. It's really dependent on what region of the giant molecular cloud that it's formed from, like how close that nearest dense region is. So if two dense regions sort of form close together, then you, you know, more easily form a binary star. 
like Sirius, the star in the chest of Orion's largest hunting dog, Canis Major. With a quick look, you can probably see Sirius A, the brightest star in the sky. But it's part of a binary system, with a second, much smaller star, Sirius B. Okay, so Serafina, why is Sirius A so bright? Sirius is at the very beginning. Um, it's a very young star compared to, you know, sort of the evolution of stars. So it's one of the closest stars to Earth. I think it's something like eight or nine light years away. Yeah. Okay. Let's compare Sirius to some older stars in Orion, right? So what process is happening in the core of these middle-aged stars? So nuclear fusion sets the uh, sort of life stage of the star. Middle-aged stars, like the Sun, have hydrogen fusing into helium in their cores. And they'll do that until the hydrogen in the center of the star runs out. Our Sun is middle-aged star. Um, It's fusing hydrogen to helium. And as a byproduct of that fusion, it emits sunlight uh, or starlight that we sort of experience every day. And, yeah, middle-aged stars are relatively stable. Okay, so, like, middle-aged stars are fusing that hydrogen into helium in a very non-chaotic way, right? Yeah, exactly. And they stay there for a while. How long are are stars technically middle-aged of their lifetime? The majority of a star's lifetime is during its middle age. So something like 90% of a star's life is spent in middle-aged, and then the last 10% is sort of this, like, violent upheaval at the end. So our sun is fusing hydrogen to helium for something like 10 billion years. So it's a very long, stable part of a star's life. Yeah. Just like me. Just 90% of my life is in (laughs) middle-age. Yep. But one day, I will be in that final 10%, right? Like Beetlejuice, sadly. And that sits in Orion's shoulder, right? Yeah, exactly. I would call Beetlejuice a star that is nearing explosion um, and is sort of an elderly star that that will explode any time now, astronomically speaking. Okay. And, And we know that because of what's happening in its core, right? Like, what is changing? So... A dying star has reached the point beyond which it can no longer fuse heavy elements in its core. It cannot get hot enough to fuse any heavier elements. But there are still shells of the lighter elements that are undergoing fusion surrounding the core of the star. And there's more to learn about the end of a star from Betelgeuse. Because it's so big, it's going to have this dramatic death. So it's a very bloated... (laughs) star. And basically, it has swollen as it gets older. Betelgeuse will not just fall back in on itself, but then it'll explode um, as a supernova. And when is the estimate that Betelgeuse is going to explode? There have been lots of discussions around when that might happen. Some people anticipate it could be tomorrow night. (laughs) And some people, you know, think more conservatively. Um, I think studies are sort of pointing at 100,000 years or so, which might seem like a very long time. But astronomically speaking, that's, you know, quite quick. Um, And... You know, I think we're all just sort of crossing our fingers and hoping that it goes off within our lifetimes, but but who knows. We actually have an example of something like this in 1054 AD. 
A star exploded, and what was left over was so bright you could see it in the daytime for about a month. And as it dimmed, you can see the debris from the explosion at night for almost two years. So can you tell us about Betelgeuse and what that might look like if it explodes? Yeah, when Betelgeuse explodes, it'll be visible during the day and the night um, for about a month and will continuously be um, visible throughout the next I think year. So it'll be something that um, won't harm us here on earth. The explosion is far enough away that we won't actually feel any sort of physical ramifications, but it'll be a beautiful light show um, that, you know, we'll be able to see for, for quite some time. What kind of life lessons can we learn from stars? First and foremost, everything changes, right? There's nothing static in the universe, really, even though it might feel that way because those timescales are so much longer than our own. Um, but change and even violent change, I think in the, in the, in a star, you know, as it nears the ends of its life, it sort of experiences these crazy rapid mass loss, violent winds, it can burp things, it can eject things. And it might seem as though that is, you know, very chaotic and, and that can have a negative connotation. But I think actually it's very normal, right? We all sort of undergo these periods of turbulence and chaos and out of that can come something really beautiful. So um, I find a lot of comfort in knowing that even these enormous stars uh, experience something that we all experience at some points in our lives. Serafina, thank you so much for being a guide to the stars with me. Thank you so much for undergoing this journey with me. Before we head out, I want to take a minute to say thank you so much to our Shortwave Plus supporters and anyone listening who donates to public media. After all, public media means that you, the public, supports it. Everything you hear from the NPR network really does depend on your contributions. And for anyone listening who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a great time to get actively involved in creating a more informed public. That's our whole mission at NPR. That's why we're here. If you like perks, Shortwave Plus offers sponsor-free listening. And if you just want to make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite station or stations in the NPR network, that's great too. We've even had NPR Plus subscribers make additional contributions. What really matters is that you are part of the community that makes this work possible. Listener support is a powerful resource. It takes all of us doing what we can, when we can, to keep this free public service going. Please give today at donate.npr.org slash shortwave or explore NPR Plus at plus.npr.org. This episode was produced by Rachel Carlson, edited by our showrunner Rebecca Ramirez and fact-checked by Brett Hansen. I'm Regina Barber. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. This message comes from EarthX. 
This April, the EarthX 2024 Congress of Conferences is the sustainability summit you won't want to miss. Five days of conferences covering the built environment, the natural environment, e-capital, oceans, and conservation. EarthX brings together business executives, nonprofits, and educators to engage in powerful conversations about energy, tech, media, and beyond for one important mission, protecting the planet. Please join them and register at earthx.org. You can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, we go back in time to where it started. Like, really started. To answer one important question, how did we get here? Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.